you have your Bibles, turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 2. We'll be in verses 6 to 20. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 to 20. If you're visiting us and you don't have a Bible, you can take the Pew Bible. It is a gift from us. It's found on, Habakkuk chapter 2 is found on page 833 in the Pew Bible. Cries for injustice goes out from those who are afflicted at the hands of others. For those who have been oppressed, marginalized, victims of wrongdoing, they seek justice. It's been true throughout history, and as we even think about the time where we're in right now, in recent years, we have seen gymnasts, actors and actresses, plead for justice, airing out the ways that they have been violated and longing for justice to be served against their perpetrators. Some of us who have been victims of wrongdoing know the pain that it truly brings and we have desired justice. Whether we've been lied to or lied on, whether we've had things stolen or we've been assaulted, if we've been victims, we have longed for justice. And the promise of justice, it is a word of hope for those who are victims. Think about when a crime has been committed and police, they begin their investigation, they speak to victims, they make known that they will pursue justice. Think about prosecutors as they get a new client. As they go to court, they are seeking justice for their client. They're aiming towards their very end. And those who are victims, they are hoping for it. For the certainty of justice is a word of hope. The very words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. For justice is certain. And the reason that is the case is because God is a just God. He's the creator of all things. He is sovereign and he is just. And he promises to justly condemn sin. He promises to justly condemn the wicked for their wickedness. And for those who have been oppressed, the promise of justice is a word of hope. And this is what we will see in this morning's passage, where God promises to justly condemn the guilty for their transgressions. So Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 to 20, if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Won't all of these... Take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him. They will say, woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you will become spoil for them. Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you. Because of human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. 
Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house, to place his nest on high, to escape the grasp of disaster. You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. Woe to him who built a city with bloodshed and found a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the peoples labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. Woe to him who says to his, woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. What use is a carved idol after his craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies, for the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes worthless idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look. It may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. You may be seated. If you're taking notes, a big idea for this passage is this, that God will judge the unrighteous. God will judge the unrighteous. We will see this in three scenes. The first scene, we will see God's judgment for extortion. Second, we see God's judgment for oppression. And then we'll see God's judgment for idolatry. God's judgment for extortion, and then oppression, and then idolatry. So for context, last week we saw how God responded to Habakkuk's complaint with another vision. And in the vision, it was a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And he goes on to describe the wicked in specific ways. And in this passage, he pronounces judgment upon the wicked as he calls out their wickedness. You see, their transgressions has merited God's justice. And here God promises that not only Babylon, but all the wicked, of all history, they will be judged. Which brings us to our first scene, judgment for extortion. Here God is promising to administer retributive justice, which is the just penalty of punishment for one's transgressions. You see here, Babylon... They are an unrighteous nation, and God is promising that they won't be spared, but that they will suffer the just penalty for their transgressions. Look at verse 6. He goes, starts with, 
He says, then they will say, woe to him who amasses what is not his, how much longer? Now the word woe, it is a pronouncement of judgment. It is an announcement of doom. It is God's response to ungodliness, to wickedness, transgressions, and sin. Now, throughout Scripture, there are a number of places where we see the word woe. Specifically, a more popular one is Isaiah chapter 6. When the prophet saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up, he was confronted with his own sin, and he pronounced judgment upon himself. Where he says, woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And in the New Testament, one of the popular ones is in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus pronounces seven woes against the religious leaders for their self-righteousness and hypocrisy. He begins to list their sins and make known that they will be judged. Here we see that God's just judgment is alarming. It's sobering and serious. And it's always, always, always in response to sin. It's never petty. He's holy, perfect, and pure. So sin provokes his righteous wrath, for he is righteous, always right, he does what is right, and he commands what is right. This, our God is good. There is no evil or wickedness or sin in him. And so his response to evil is never apathy. He never approves of it. It arouses his burning anger. And his standard is perfection. He will judge, and in his judgment, he never None will ever defend themselves before him. None will ever appeal his verdict. For he is righteous and a just judge. Psalm chapter 89 verse 14 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And this God, he is the creator of all and so he is worthy of our obedience, our love, our affections, and our worship. He created us that we may worship and love him supremely, that we may love those who are made in his image and steward his creation and use things well. Where sin has corrupted us, though, to where now, because we are affected with sin and we're sinners, we push God on the margins. We disregard him. And so now we worship ourselves. We love things and we use people which is first and foremost a sin against God. For all sins are first and foremost against him. Now, Scripture says that he is the judge of all the earth. So therefore, he will do what is just. That means all the earth will have to give an account to him. And he doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't excuse it or justify it. He will not compromise his justice. In chapter 1, we saw that he said that he will judge Judah. And so if he judged his own covenant people, we can be for sure that he will judge the unrighteous pagan nations. Where he goes on to pronounce judgment for their extortion. He says, woe to him who amasses what is not his, how much longer? 
and loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you will become spoiled for them. Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. You see, Babylon, they had plundered the nations, violently took what was not theirs. They coveted people's possessions and belongings. And in their greed, they said that they will take it themselves and continue to take and take and take. You see, their quest for dominance came through violence. They were fierce. Chapter 1, verse 6 said that they seized territories, not its own. And the reason why they did this is because they had a complete disregard for other people. They exalted only themselves. They lived as autonomous beings, not giving them, not adhering to anyone's instruction. Chapter 1, verse 7 says that their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. So they were greedy, they coveted, they took. And y'all, these things ain't only true in nations, but also in individuals. You see, coveting and greed is a part of everyone because all of us are sinners. We have this inordinate desire to require, where we require, want to desire, require more, and we want what other people have. The heart is never satisfied. And the reality is, we are born this way. Think about it. You never have to teach a toddler to take things from other people. They just do it. And they keep doing it, not being satisfied at all. And it don't end when you get adolescence. You know, it happens as we are adults to where we begin to take things from other people. No concern on how it would impact others. We've seen adults take people's possessions, take credit for people's work. And sadly, some seek to take people's spouses through adulterous relationships. And the reality is, you know, man, when Christ saves us, these wicked desires don't just vanish. Because we live in this body of flesh, we also have to go to war against coveting and greed. To where we begin to desire what other people have, whether it's their possessions, their job, their house, their friends. We can easily find ourselves coveting what other people have and being greedy. If you want to think about, like, what, how could I be guilty of this? The question for you to consider is like, man, where are the areas where you're discontent? Where are the areas in your life that you just greatly desire things? For those would be the very same areas where you may be tempted towards coveting and greed. As Christ has redeemed us, we can go to war with our flesh in these areas. And so if we're going to go to war with coveting and greed, the way to do it is to cultivate a heart of gratitude. Being grateful for all that the Lord gives, knowing that he is good. And he is good towards us. You see, celebrating what other people have, what God has given them, that helps to slay coveting. And being grateful for what the Lord has done for us helps to slay greed. Here we see God in his omniscience and omnipresence. 
declare that he sees the wickedness and that he will judge. Y'all behold God's personal care for image bearers in creation. As he says, won't your creditors suddenly arise? You will become spoiled because of human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. You see, here God makes the judgment personal. He knows who did it, what they did, and why they did, and he promised that they will not be spared. He says that the judgment will suddenly come. You see, whether it's immediately, as it was for Babylon, as the Medes and the Persians came and destroyed their kingdom, or whether it's delayed, but one thing is for certain, that judgment will come. Time won't cause God to forget. It won't cause him to change his mind, and it won't cause him to throw out the case. With God, there is no statue of limitation. He will judge. He dismisses no cases. And because he's just, he will justly dispense his judgment on the wicked. Look at verse 9. It says, Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high to escape the grasp of disaster. Babylon, they rose to power through violence and injustice and deceit. They were greedy and they pursued wealth at all costs. They were willing to and they did wicked things to attain wealth. They built their empire at the, at the expense of others. And they found their safety and security in riches, which has deceived them. This is... The reality is the acquisition of wealth can be deceitful. It's where we begin to think that we're superior to others, invincible because we possess a ton. Begins to have us think that we're exempt from judgment and disaster. Begins to lead us to think that we can do whatever we want and that we won't be held accountable. You see it often in the news. As more and more things come out about what rich people have done as they begin to be held accountable. For a long time, they probably thought that they would get away with it because of who they are, their status, and their wealth. And here God declares that they won't get away with it. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, you have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall, and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. You see, God says that because of your cruel and inhumane punishment, you will be judged. Try to exalt yourself through riches. It is merited judgment for yourself. The kingdom won't last. In fact, God is going to bring about a demolition crew and destroy it. The reality is greed, coveting, and, hope, and hoping in money, it is deadly. It clouds one's own view of reality. So we begin to treat whoever, however we want. We don't view people as image bearers who are worthy of love, honor, and respect. Instead, we begin to see people as a means towards an end. They are either a help or a hindrance. We begin to try to crush the competition and maintain our wealth at any cost. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says, But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap of many foolish and harmful desires, 
which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Their possession of wealth has deceived Babylon and other, other people. They think they will be exempt and excluded, but God makes known that that's just not going to happen. You see, wealth may buy you a favorable verdict in a human court, but it will not buy you a favorable verdict with God. Because God is holy and just, he cannot be tempted with evil. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 4 says that wealth is not profitable on the day of wrath. Wealth will not save anyone from judgment. Only Jesus can do that. He is the true refuge. He is our true and lasting security. He is the one who truly delivers us from the wrath to come by taking it upon himself. He does for us what wealth cannot. So may our hope not be in our money, but in our gracious Savior who loved us and gave himself up for us. And beloved, may we be content with what the Lord has given us. It is not a sin in and of itself to have money and to have wealth. We're to be a people who are above reproach and work with integrity to attain it. But may we also steward it well for God's glory, knowing that he is our Lord and not our dollars. And so here God promises judgment for extortioners. That is judgment. It will either happen in this life or in the life to come. It happens in this life through government as part of the purposes of human government is to punish wickedness and evil. But even if one were to get away in this life, they certainly will not on the day of judgment. For every deed has been recorded and everyone will give an account and stand before a holy and just and righteous God. So here we see God's judgment for the extortion. But it's not only, his judgment is not only for extortion, but it's also for oppression. Look at verses 12. Look at verse 12. He says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Here God promises judgment for wicked conquests. Now as image bearers, we are to work the ground. We are to build civilization. But how civilization is built matters to God. You see, here, Babylon, they had construction through violence and oppression and injustice. They built their cities and their kingdom through wickedness. And it wasn't only true of that nation. It's been true of wicked rulers throughout. It's also true of our very own nation. Think about USA's civilization. How much of our land, much of the civilization we had was built on the backs of slaves through race-based chattel slavery, where they took people of color, forced them into slavery, making them work and didn't pay them, treated them not as people, but as possessions, built this nation on the backs of slaves. And God declares that he sees the wickedness, he hears the cries, and that he will judge. It doesn't only happen among nations. It also takes place with individuals. As people seek to build their name, 
their brand, their company, by oppression and violence, threatening people, building up themselves at the expense of others, the Lord will not acquit the guilty. Look at verse 13. He says, Is it not from the Lord of armies that the peoples labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? Here the Lord makes known that the building is in vain, for it will be consumed by fire in judgment. Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 8 says, This is what the Lord of armies says. Babylon's thick wall will be totally demolished and her high gates set ablaze. The people will have labored for nothing. The nations will weary themselves only to feed the fire. You see here, God promises that he will administer justice that they and all that they have built will be consumed in fire, that it will not last, that it will be consumed in his just judgment against their wickedness. And here's why he will do it. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. God is making known that the kingdoms of man will not last Because his glorious kingdom will come. He will consummate his kingdom. He will fulfill the earth, fill the earth with his glory. But what precedes that is his judgment. Where he destroys kingdoms. Now this verse is a combination of two Old Testament texts. Numbers chapter 14 verse 21 says, Yet as I live and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9 says, they will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. You see here, God is promising that he will consummate his kingdom. As man labor in vain to build their kingdom, God is also actively at work advancing his. And he's promising that man's kingdom will be obliterated. It is only his kingdom that will stand and last throughout eternity because his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. To hear God promises that one day, all of creation, every inch of civilization will be covered with his glory. That in this life right now, in this age, creation groans as we see disasters and destruction and injustice. As we ourselves groan, as we experience pain and grief, Oppression, exploitation, violence, and injustice, God is promising that one day it will be completely done away with. To where the groaning will be renewed to glory. The curse will be removed. What is ruined creation will be refined to restoration. And God will dwell with his people And it's only made possible through the coming of Jesus Christ. As Christ came upon the earth, as he inaugurated his kingdom, as he died and resurrected from the grave, and now his gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. And as the gospel spreads, the knowledge of God's glory is going forth to the ends of the earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to get the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, by his grace, as the gospel goes forth, as people turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, we behold God's glory through Jesus. 
And as we grow in our understanding of the gospel, we're being filled with the fullness of God. And one day, Jesus will return and the whole earth will be filled with his fullness, his glorious presence. You see, y'all, this is hope. This is a word of hope for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ by faith. You see, here in chapter 1, verse 17, Habakkuk was pleading with God, how long will the Babylonians rule? And here God is promising that their reign will not last. But what will last is his glorious reign. And only those who know Christ by faith will dwell in that land, being co-heirs with our king. And so what are we to do? Y'all, we are to build our hopes on things that are eternal. We are to trust in God's promise and anticipate it, knowing that it will certainly happen. In the midst of the context of all the judgment that God is promising, he gives a word of hope. And he continues with promising judgment. Look at verse 15. He says, woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. Here we see oppression through exploitation. As the Babylonians, they indulged in drunkenness. They would have their neighbors or those who were captive drink and get drunk. And then they would degrade them with sexual sin. Y'all, this was a very depraved act. Oftentimes, drunkenness is accompanied with sexual sin. Think about Lot in Genesis. As he got drunk, next thing you know, his daughter slept with him. Think about stories all throughout the news where you hear of assault and sexual rape after one has been drugged or has gotten drunk. And y'all, as we listen to this, we can easily think that we're exempt from this. But the seed of every sin dwells within. We live in this body of flesh. And y'all, if we're not careful, we can commit very similar sins. To where we can tempt people for personal pleasure and entertainment. We can encourage our neighbors or coworkers towards drunkenness because we like how they act when they got alcohol in their system. We can even find ourselves being entertained by things that are shameful. And out of a love for Christ, these things should not be so among the redeemed. Because Christ has saved us by his grace. Temptation should not come from us. The encouragement of drunkenness and sexual sin should not come from us. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 says, But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard among you, as is proper for saints. You see, it is proper for us to be holy in all of our conduct. And here God declares that he will justly judge. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, you will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you. 
because of your human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. Well, this nation has disgraced others, and so God is promising that they themselves will be disgraced. They would lose their honor, which took place in 539 B.C. when the Medes and the Persians came and destroyed Babylon's kingdom. We see this in Daniel chapter 5, that on the very night before their kingdom was destroyed, they were drinking, getting drunk, indulged in idolatry. And that very night, the Medes and the Persians came and destroyed the kingdom. God saying that, man, you guys are giving people a cup of wine to exploit them. He declares that I'm going to give you a cup. And this cup will be a cup of wrath for your transgressions. Psalm chapter 75, verse 8. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine, blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. This cup is a cup of judgment. It is a cup of wrath. It is the consequence of one's own rebellion against a holy and righteous God. And he says that he will make his rounds, forcing all the unrighteous to drink. Not one guilty person will be spared. Now, this word of judgment upon wicked nations should be a word of hope. It should provoke celebration for those who are oppressed. And it should simultaneously cause one to mourn. Because God's cup of judgment isn't just against, quote-unquote, big sins, but all sins. His cup of judgment is for all who are guilty of sin. And Scripture says, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reality is we may not have sinned in the very same way, but the reality is we also have sinned against him. And so God is just, and he will not overlook anyone. He will not overlook any sin. And, y'all, this is a huge problem. This is problematic because the guilty will not go unpunished. And so the question is, how is one to escape this judgment? Well, it's not by your works. It's not by wealth. But it's by the riches of God's mercy. Because the one who is just has also revealed himself to be merciful. In fact, it is the very first way he described himself when he revealed his glory to Moses. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so the question is, how is it that God can be merciful and just? How can he forgive sin and yet not leave the guilty unpunished? Y'all, this is the riddle of the Old Testament. How is it possible? The riddle is resolved by Jesus Christ. You see, God in his love sent his very own son who became a man, who lived this life, walked on earth, and he lived a righteous life perfectly obeying all the commands. 
And on the cross, he suffered God's judgment for our sins. You see, it's at the cross of Jesus Christ where God's justice and his mercy met. Where the cup of wrath that is reserved for us was passed over us and handed to Jesus Christ. And he drunk it all. The sinless one bore God's judgment in our place. Where he died for our greed, our coveting, our deceit, our immorality, our drunkenness our partiality, all the ways that we have used others for selfish gain, Jesus bled for that we may be forgiven, that we may be saved. And three days later, he resurrected from the grave. God's wrath has been satisfied because Christ shed his blood. And Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to all who have trusted in him. To where now, before God, we don't stand condemned, but we stand as holy and blameless, righteous, as if we lived perfectly, because Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to us by faith. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 will say it this way. For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The righteous one suffered in the place of the unrighteous, that we may be declared righteous by faith. And so the only reason why we will not drink the cup of wrath is not because we're better than. It's not because we have a better resume. It's not because God saw something in us that was great. It's solely because of God's mercy. He didn't compromise his justice. Instead, he poured it out on Jesus in our place. And so now in Christ Jesus, God will never hand us a cup of wrath. And he never will. Instead, he will hand us a cup of blessing where we have communion with God through Jesus. To where now he is our father by faith through Christ. Behold the mercy of God. It is seen as beautiful and precious as it truly is when we see what we actually deserve for our sins. And simultaneously we begin to see what we get through Jesus. And so if you know yourselves to not be a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. As you see, this passage teaches us that God is just. He sees sins. He records them. He doesn't forget. And friend, this is bad news for sinners. This is bad news for you. Because he sees your sin. And he promises that he will judge in his timing. But the good news is that God is a merciful God that he wants to save sinners, and that he does save sinners. He did it by sending his own son, who died and resurrected from the grave, and he offers salvation to all who would trust in Jesus. And so if you want to know God's mercy, it's through Christ. It's found in him. And so, friends, I would implore you this very day, flee the judgment that is to come by trusting in Jesus Christ. 
He is the only refuge. He is the only Savior. If you want to talk more about trusting in Christ, you can talk with any of the members after service. But we love having these conversations. Here we see that the Lord is just. And as his people, we should desire justice. We also see that the Lord is merciful. And so as his people, we should be pleading for the Lord to show mercy. We should want justice for those who have committed wrongs. We should want the wrongdoer to be held accountable for their sins. And at the same time, we should be pleading for God to have mercy on their souls. That God would save them by his grace. You see, mercy received should result in us pleading for God to dispense mercy upon those who don't know him. And this passage teaches us that God promises to judge those who oppress. The next scene we will see his promise of judgment for idolatry. Look at verse 18 and 19. What use is a carved idol after his craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies. For the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes worthless idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. Here God promises judgment for idolatry. And idolatry is the sin beneath every sin, where worship of God has been replaced with worship of creation. And it always results in wickedness. You see, the devaluing of God results to disregarding of image bearers, and it also leads to disobedience. You see, the reason why there's extortion, oppression, injustice, immorality, and degradation is because there's idolatry. It's first and foremost a theological problem because it's misplaced worship. And God opposes idolatry. We see it in the commandments. It's the very first command that he prohibits. You should have no other gods beside me. You see, where love for God is absent, sin against God is present, and the consequences are deadly. One theologian would say that relating rightly to God inevitably results in proper response and the proper regard for creation, for image bearers in all creation. And the very opposite is true as well. Where we don't regard God rightly, we will treat man and creation wrongly. And here God promises judgment for idolatry. Well, what is an idol? It's a false god. Some sort of creation. It's the worship of it. Where God has been dethroned and that creation has been enthroned. And throughout biblical times and even today, people have made Images, carved images of idols, made idols of animals, made idols of creation like water and rivers. It is a teacher of lies because it symbolized power and yet it has no power. It is false. 
It's lifeless. It can't rescue. It can't save. It cannot display any type of revelation. Idols are things that people hope in for it to do something, and yet that idol is powerless to do it. And the reality is idolatry wasn't just a problem in their day, for it's also a problem in our day. The human heart hasn't changed. It hasn't improved over time. In the words of John Calvin, the human heart is an idol factory. It may not necessarily be a carved image, but it is some sort of creation. Whether it's family, pleasure, power, control, comfort, status. It's the very things that people look to for significance, security, motivation, whatever it is that consumes your mind and your time, whatever it is that you can't depart with, whatever it is that you would sin to get or sin to keep, that is your idol. So the question is, what is it for you? What are you doing to put it to death? Which church members know that we may help? If we're going to slay our idolatry, we must meditate on the worthiness of Jesus, that he is great and glorious, that he is supreme, that he is the true God, and what he promises is infinitely better than what we're hoping some sort of creation could give us. And here God pronounces judgment on idolaters. And he does so because idolatry is sin, because only God is God. So only he should be treated and worshipped as God. He deserves our worship, for he created us for his glory. We are created to know him, to love him, and to worship him, so to do otherwise is sin against him. And beloved, God is greater than any idol. He's greater than all the idols put together, for he is eternal where an idol has been created. He has life in himself where an idol has no life. He's not dependent upon anyone or anything where idols are always dependent. He alone creates. He alone speaks, and what he speaks, he acts upon. He alone gives revelation, and he alone is the Savior. And he promises that where there is idolatry, there will be judgment. Look at verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. You see, God is holy and he is enthroned above creation. All people will stand before him and give an account and he will judge. As he has revealed himself, through the word, the proper response is reverence, silence, knowing that one will have to stand before that holy one. And one would agree with the judgment because when one who is unrighteous stand before a holy and righteous God, they will say like Isaiah, woe is me. To hear God promises that he will judge. That judgment will come on the final day through Jesus Christ. His resurrection from the grave is the proof, and his judgment is just. 
justice will be served. He will condemn the unrighteous. But for all who have trusted in Jesus, we don't have to fear that day. We don't have to dread it because judgment for our sins have already taken place through Christ. To where we get to long for that day because knowing that judgment precedes glory, we get to be with God in glory. By his grace and for his glory. To where God's glorious kingdom will be consummated, where his glory covers the face of the earth, we will be in that place. Forever enamored by God's mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. And so this is a word of hope for all who are in Jesus. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, God, you are holy and righteous. You are merciful and kind. We praise you for your mercy that you have shown us in Christ Jesus, knowing that we deserve your judgment and yet you have given us your son. You've given us his righteousness. You've given us a righteous standing before you by your grace. God, we pray that as you have declared us righteous by faith, may we seek to reflect your righteousness as a way of life. May we long for the return of Christ Jesus when groaning will give way to glory, where you will consummate your kingdom and we get to be with you when our faith turns to sight. Help us to long for that day and walk by faith until it becomes sight. It's in Jesus' name, amen.